0: Welcome to the Parish Art Museum podcast, where we aspire to provide opportunities for learning, sharing, and celebrating the many innovative and pioneering artists who call the East End home. Come back each week to find new and impactful experiences in the arts. Hi, everybody. I wanted to welcome you to the series of talks I wanted to do on Helen Frankenthaler in Provincetown, our wonderful show, which I hope you've all had a chance to see, or you will after this. It's been a real thrill to obviously bring it to the parish. It was organized by the Provincetown Art Association Museum in Provincetown, shown there last summer, with the Frankenthaler Foundation and with Lise Motherwell, who is a stepdaughter of the artist, uh, of course the daughter of uh, Robert Motherwell, her husband at the time, much of the time in Provincetown. So interesting with Lee's and from many other uh, people who sort of had firsthand knowledge of these years a great deal has been written about them we will just focus on Provincetown and the time she spent there her first summer in Provincetown was in 1950 she had in fact studied art throughout high school she was born in the upper east side of new york she went to the dalton school and interestingly enough, one painter named Rufino Tamayo, the great Mexican modernist, was there at that point teaching. So she learned really from him. He was a devotee of Picasso. He'd really come to New York because everyone else in Mexico, like Siqueiros and uh, Ribeiro, was painting politically committed works. And Tamayo was really a thoroughgoing cubist and really went with the French, you know, I say School of Paris. So she really learned about that very early on. Tamayo admired her early work very much. She went on to Bennington College, a very progressive school in Bennington, Vermont. Then it was all women. Uh, Had wonderful teachers and actually Paul Feely, who would go on to be really a peer of hers in the art world, was there teaching as well. Again, singled out for her curiosity, inventiveness and what she was doing with art even at that time. She met a rather influential person in the art world, one Clement Greenberg, when she was at her first year in New York and she had graduated from Bennington and she was starting out in the art world. She had the brilliant idea of organizing an exhibition of Bennington alumni, that would be. NAE alumni, uh, for uh, the Jacques Seligman Gallery, a very prominent Upper East Side Gallery, and she invited some critics, and one of them was Clement Greenberg, uh, who actually showed up. Um, you may know that he was a prominent writer, um, also great, great champion of abstract expressionism and Jackson Pollock, and though Helen later wrote that he didn't think much of her painting in the show, uh, they started a what we'd now call a relationship for about five years. Pretty much it was like getting a graduate degree and a PhD and everything combined in the art world through travel and through meeting people. And one of the first things he did, that show was in 1950 and when she'd graduated from college, now keep in mind she's what now, 21, 22, right? Very young still. And Greenberg said to her, you must go and study in Provincetown. The great German emigre Hans Hoffmann, who had come over really in the 30s and had a school in New York established. In the summer of 34, he established a a school in Provincetown as well. So this was, of course, an art. Uh, center, not unlike, I think we claim it first here on the east end of Long Island. Uh, Provincetown is also, that tip of Cape Cod is also called the East End, which leads to much confusion if you're talking about both of them. But actually, certainly with artists coming out and, and Chase's uh, school in the Shennecock Hills is 1891. Charles Webster Hawthorne, a painter who worked with Chase Uh, there at the school, as an instructor, decided to start his own school in Provincetown, so by the turn of the century they had a school too there. Uh, So Hoffman was in that lineage Frankenthaler dutifully went to, but only for three weeks, and she was smart enough to listen to Greenberg when he had advice, and it was very good advice because it put her sort of in the nexus of other artists who were working there. Lee Krasner had been there some years before, Robert De Niro Sr., Nell Blaine was there. This is where people went. It was a great place to go, right? How many of you know Provincetown? That's quite wonderful. I'd never been there till last summer, but you can see obviously the attraction. Well before that, Thomas Hart Benton was there, Pollock went there, so it had that reputation, probably stronger in the first half of the 20th century than than the East End here. At any rate, there she is in the studio in Provincetown, where the students worked. She famously only stayed three weeks and was able to, you'll see in the exhibition, of drawing. Hoffman, it was a very sort of classical beginning study, classical drawing from the nude. And you'll see an early work uh, in the show, in the first gallery. And in fact, she... Hoffman was known for coming up to a student and going, yeah, this way, this way, this way, he had would actually draw over the drawings. Helen (laughs) Frankenthaler managed to fend him off. You'll see a little square upper right that Hoffman drew on, but he was a very animated teacher. He talked about the push and pull of color uh, in a painting, sort of a another, you know, formal consideration, but she took it all in and it was a very important summer for her. She was, um, this is one of the paintings she did there, it's called Provincetown Bay. Now the interesting thing about Frankenthaler in many ways is she's a thoroughgoing abstractionist painter. This is probably the one one of the more referential uh, canvases and, and works that you'll see in the exhibition. But she always said she looked at the landscape and she took that feeling, whatever her emotions were, her response. That's what she put into a painting. So that was the first summer. She was not back in Provincetown for quite a few years, really, back on the Cape in 59 and 60. But I'll just to talk about one detour, you might say. Um, Can't forget this moment. She Greenberg, as I said, was the great exponent of Jackson Pollock's work. Greenberg, after centuries of painters painting with impasto or a great surface on the painting, Greenberg was all about it going in flat on the canvas. Flatness was what he talked about, and that was somewhat revolutionary, and he also realized that's what painters were doing. So, he visited uh, Pollock quite a bit in 5051 into 52, and Frankenthaler went with him on some of those weekends coming out to Springs, and uh, you can just imagine, they were also there obviously in the summer, the picture upper right. You can imagine the influence of and and the moment that Frankenthaler here, what, 21, 22, uh, walks into this studio and actually sees, although it's never really clear that she saw him painting, in other words, moving down the canvas, what she did see and what she did take in was the fact that the canvas was on the floor, that he literally had a big role had rolled it out, unfurled it on the floor of the studio. Now, how many of you have been to the Pollock Krasner's house here in the studio? OK, well, if you haven't been, you have to go. It's absolutely extraordinary that that space is there, that it's preserved, uh, wonderful materials that you can read about. And it's something we don't do enough of in this country, is preserve amazing places like that. It's part of the uh, Pollock Krasner Foundation and uh, is beautifully run there. You can certainly make an appointment to go. And you, you, when you see the size of the studio, you can just imagine uh, coming into a studio full of these. This is a period where it had actually been a rather dry period in his work. I don't think he's got it right there, but Krasner had, in fact, ordered. That's, of course, his wife, Lee Krasner, um, in the back. Wonderful artist herself, of course. Has anyone seen the big show in London? is apparently a quite extraordinary show there now, a full retrospective of her work. So it only took 50 years, but (laughs) this is often the case with uh, women artists, for uh, often women artists. At any rate, Frankenthaler did say as she went to galleries, she and uh, Greenberg went to all the galleries in New York every Saturday, and they would get the catalogs, and they would together give them one check, two checks, or three checks. So not only was she, were they going there and listening, but she was absorbing that and learning to make her own critical judgment. So she recalls the first time that she saw these paintings actually on view in 1950 at the Betty Parsons Gallery. She felt as though Greenberg had taken her into the middle of Madison Square Garden and plunked her down (laughs) and all the lights were on her. It was like a moment of, total revelation, later seeing the studio itself. What she took from this was really the the fact that the canvas was on the floor, the fact that he was using different kinds of paint in the uh, basting syringes. He would put black enamel paint, and she really, the the takeaway, oh, and, and the paintings, it was, wasn't cut. In other words, a big portion of canvas would be unfurled. He would and a choreographed movement we always think sort of dance down the canvas putting the paint on and then later see where the paint later cut the canvas to make a painting they weren't huge at that point they were large but not not huge actually smaller than he had been doing and also the idea that you could walk around once you cut you could walk around and the one side would be the top or it could be the bottom. In other words, not predetermining what was top or bottom. And that's why it's often called a sort of all over painting, which is what Greenberg called it. And that's for a very good reason. It's all over and on the edges. So this was, you know, the graduate program, the PhD and everything all rolled into one. This relationship was for about five years. I just wanna to touch briefly on Uh, painting not um, in the show, of course, this is the very famous Mountains and Sea, which she painted in 1952. So this would put this after the period that she's been in the springs at the studio. She and Greenberg took a sketching trip around the Cape of the maritime provinces, around Nova Scotia. And Greenberg painted as well. They drew and sketched and brought those back. And in October of that year, in 52, she was alone in her studio. And she began to work on this huge piece of canvas. Uh, It's quite a large painting. And using every manner of paint, diluting the paint with various things. It's unprimed, of course. There's no layer on, on the surface of the canvas so that, in fact, the paint will soak through also. Uh, with oil paint there will be a soaking through of the paint and then later some of the uh, uh, the oil will sort of seep out and cause us a rather aureole around the shape. you will see this in many of the paintings that she worked in oil in the show. So that you see her there and in the wonderful video it, it, that's here and you should take a moment to look at it. I could talk all day and all night about the broom <laughs> and the trowel and the spongy and but and once you see her actually painting it's a revelation because she absolutely went full throttle she even herself called it the let it rip and this painting was really extraordinarily radical and a, a major influence on some what you would call younger painters they were probably even a bit older than Helen, because again, born in 1928, this is 1952, so she's 24, and she painted it. No one was there, apparently, although some texts dispute that. But at any rate, Greenberg later, who had a key to the studio, took uh, two young painters, Kenneth Nolan and Morris Lewis, in to see it. Now you may know those names, perhaps, from the very large paintings that came in the later 50s, big stained canvases she in fact this came this technique that she used came to be known as soak and stain and she originated it there's really no question that she brought it together in this moment with this large painting and Kenneth Nolan said it was such an extraordinary work and that Helen taught us where you go after Pollock As young painters, they were sort of stymied by that, you know, the great landmark works that that Pollock did. People didn't really know where to go. And Morris Lewis would say the same as well, that she really pointed the way. I don't think she's ever really gotten that much credit for it in the annals of art history. But what came next, of course, is what's called color field painting for obvious reasons. Helen is often called a color field painter, certainly Nolan and Morris Lewis are. But uh, not surprisingly, Greenberg got on this bandwagon pretty quickly, as it was a brand new movement to sort of deconstruct. So uh, I think what she took away from Pollock's studio and those visits that day was this idea of risk-taking, that you didn't stop to think about exactly the materials. It was this instinctive way uh, of painting in a way that you didn't sort of judge yourself or censor yourself. You just went for it. Now when she was asked if this was a sketch, was it from Nova Scotia? It's called Mountains and Sea, so you might uh, suspect that as the source. And she said, well, you know, we sketched there, but I brought it back. I didn't draw from this at all. I simply brought back that landscape in my arms, which I think is a wonderful way that she always describes sort of internalizing these uh, landscapes that take them in and then something that comes out is what she puts into that. It's really her own emotional feeling looking at the landscape and you'll see that almost everything in the show has a very specific title and particularly these the the ones here in the show about Provincetown. Now that was 1952 so that was a that's a little bit of a recap for those of you who were here. I hope I haven't bored you too much but um, I wanted to just set the stage for this. So she went on was doing wonderful painting. She was, uh, her first show at the Tibor Dinage Gallery was the next year, and she showed Mountains and Sea. Uh, she actually put a price tag on it of $100, and uh, it didn't sell. It never sold. I don't know how much longer she left it on the market. I think she just said, I'm taking this back. So it's now still in the hands of the foundation, which is a f- which she started and she, initiated in her lifetime. It's been on long-term, very long-term loan to the National Gallery of Art in Washington, where you may have seen it. But she took that as enough of a rebuff that she never wanted it to be on the market, so to speak. We fast forward now to 1957, when she met Robert Motherwell, Uh, You'll see him there. Motherwell, 14 years her senior, already a very established artist, certainly of the uh, virtually 14 years, but virtually a a generation older than she. When they came together, they were pretty dazzling and often called the golden couple of the art world. People were writing that kind of copy even back then. So... uh, But um, Motherwell was the youngest of the abstract expressionism. He'd been born and raised on the West Coast. He was highly educated. He had taken philosophy. And he also spoke French fluently, which which (laughs) most of the abstract expressionism painters took a dim view of because he was the only one who conversed when the surrealist artists came to New York during World War II and also after the poets and, and artists and of course Motherwell was the only one that could speak to them and many of them did not speak English so they were a little put out by that but he was by all accounts of, you know, a brilliant man not the most animated of people, but even according to his daughter, but that Helen really brought that out in him. There's a wonderful passage that his friend, the, the critic Jack Flom, once wrote, though she was almost 14 years younger, it was she who took him under her wing. He spoke French well, and thus he was the only one who could really communicate, as I say. And he had been going through something of a fallow period at that point, a block in his art, he really didn't know where to go, and something about the energy and the real energy and the work ethic, I think, of Frankenthaler brought him out of that. They did take a very long honeymoon the whole summer of 58 in Europe, but of course they were looking at art and working the whole time, so to speak. They took, in the end, they took a villa in Saint-Jean-de-Luz, which is on the Atlantic coast of France, and a little fishing village. But there was an old villa out of town, which they rented. They both had spaces to paint, and it was just apparently a wonderful way that they began to to uh, their lives together. Frankenthaler never had to sort of subvert her career to his the way, as we learn, many uh, wives of, uh, Painters do, it's it's not unusual that one career is focused on, but they seem to have uh, achieved a balance of working in tandem. I think an interesting, she wrote a postcard to her friend, uh, Grace Hartigan, a fellow painter. She wrote a postcard from, uh, or a letter actually, from France, and you'll see in the vitrines that with all the archival material, it's really stunning the way people sat down and wrote long, long letters to one another. And these contain. Helen is such a voluble and you know honest writer that you, you can glean so much from that, as as many many archives and scholar, archivists and scholars have. She had a a friend from college named Sonia Rudikoff, who whom she wrote over 500 letters to over the course of their lives, and that's uh, such an extraordinary trove now at Princeton. Uh, library, the letter she wrote to Grace Hartigan, which are particularly interesting, because she's writing to a fellow painter, uh, Grace, who sort of came out of that um, Abex movement, but was already a figurative painter, and they both showed together at T. Bourdages Gallery. So she writes to Grace, and she says, "Now this is from the villa." in France on the honeymoon. I'm sitting on the porch, sipping a 5 p.m. vermouth in a bathing suit, listening to jazz hot on the portable. We've both been working a great deal. That would be she and Bob. I thought after so many months not working that I'd suffer real birth pains, but somehow in three days I started and kept going like one possessed. This is because they had been traveling a good two months in... Um, that's great honeymoon. A good two months in Europe before they stopped, and, and in Saint Jean de Luz, all the feelings and ideas I'd been storing up poured out, and I couldn't get the materials to fly fast enough. Some of the results looked just that way, and now I'm more apt to stand back, take a look, think. Revive, think again, revise, think again, try again. The walls of the reeky Villa are slowly being covered inch by inch on all floors with our work. It's been a beautiful and thrilling experience for us to share, to watch, to talk, to encourage. Joy, she says. Sounds like a great honeymoon, (laughs) doesn't it? (laughs) So the next year, they were, first year on the Cape, they were actually had rented a house in Falmouth, It's sometimes described as a modernist house. You can see upper right. It looks uh, rather like a a mid-century, as we call them here. They were very happy there that first summer. But in fact, Motherwell owned a house at 622 Commercial Street in Provincetown. You may know, if you know Provincetown, you know Commercial Street. It is just that. It's the main hub. It's kind of a block over from the water, and uh, it's where everything goes on. And so it's a busy street. But he had rented that. In fact, he and his second wife owned that jointly. And with uh, her... Uh, with his second wife he had two daughters who at this time were about three and five whom he missed really terribly but um, this would be the first summer on the Cape together she and Motherwell but they would not be quite in Provincetown yet but she did some interesting paintings there one is on view in the first gallery as well. So there's a picture of her (laughs) with mountains and sea Everyone, of course, smoked in those days. Uh, lower right, I think it's probably while the show might have been open at T-Bordonnage, but uh, lower right, Frankenthaler in the middle, Grace Hardigan on the right, and Joan Mitchell on the left. Now, this was sort of the trio of young painters, well, also Nell Blaine and Jane Wilson, who were showing at Tibor De Nage, which is a very interesting, a gallery that also showed Larry Rivers and Fairfield Porter, and uh, very much sort of an East End crowd. And Nell Blaine lived out here, as did Grace Hardigan. But this was an article, in fact, you'll see on the timeline, Women Artists in Ascendance. Uh, This was really the moment where that was encapsulated. Well, they didn't ascend far enough, but certainly noteworthy at that period. Uh, There's a great new book, which I thought was real gossipy at first, but now I'm a total convert (laughs) to it. Anybody read Ninth Street Women? I only have a few quotes. (laughs) Um, I think it's well researched. There are a lot of quotes you think boy, how did she get that out of those people? But um, very interesting about focusing on these, also an older, well, an older Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning, but also on Mitchell uh, Hardigan, and Frankenthaler. It's an interesting read. I won't call it a beach read, but it's too, far too heavy. They're coming out with another, it's, it's sold out in the first edition, uh, edition and it will be an HBO series. <laughs> which they're already apparently interviewing people in East Hampton. Speaking of Grace Hardigan, here's a note she wrote on a postcard. If you can see the young woman on the left, this was probably a postcard from, had been made, what, 10 years before maybe in Provincetown, but uh, Helen picked it up because she thought it was so funny, Um, which it is. Uh, She wrote the note to Grace. So this is 1960 and the first summer on the Cape. So they're in, uh, in the house on Commercial Street. But this is what she writes to uh, Grace. Grace, dear, the funny bit about this card is that the, kid paint, the kids paint an abstract. Don't look like no wharf to me on that canvas. We're having a delightful time. House is simple, easy, pleasant. Kids play all day and look and are so happy. Bob and I have started some small-scale paintings, play tennis, diet, and enjoy the great weather and sense of seaside well-being, which is kind of what these years in Provincetown is is all about, that seaside well-being, which they relish so much. The girls by now were four and six and would come actually to live full-time with Motherwell and Frankenthaler in the next year. This is the house at 622 Commercial Street, beautiful cape very commodious, a lot of room. They both had studios there, and this is a painting from early in that period. She did not, Motherwell often uh, liked to look out at the landscape, even though he, of course, painted abstractly as well. Frankenthaler, not so much. She might get the inspiration from one of her two uh, daily swims, as Lise Motherwell has told us, or from anything else she might see. Uh, in the landscape around her. The year after this she in fact purchased the share of the house from Motherwell's ex-wife so that they owned it uh, jointly at that point point. and they had a little Fiat Jolly which is a little roustabout about car that probably wouldn't be allowed on the streets anymore. <laughs> it had a little uh, wicker top as well if you needed to stay out of the sun. But by all accounts it was a very happy, happy uh, period in these summers, and they were both extraordinarily productive. As Jack Flam pointed out, that she was very good at nerd, um, you know being supportive, uh, not neglecting her own work, but um, supporting his as well. Now, uh, Hans Hoffman, who was a very sort of avuncular type, had known Motherwell, of course, long before Helen came to Provincetown that summer of 1950. But at any rate, he kept up with both of them, and he lived there. He wrote this very detailed drawing of, he thought it would be an excellent place for them to set up studios. He knew they were a little cramped in the house. So this is a Day's Lumberyard, which had already been sort of co-opted by, for studios by other artists as well. It wasn't really a functioning lumberyard at that time. It had some wonderful... Uh, 19th century buildings. So he wrote (laughs) instructions for Bob and suggestions. I think he was pretty good at trying to micromanage people's (laughs) lives but uh, which good good teachers always are. So he suggested that they could put in heat, how they convert, could convert the studios, uh, how they could put in a toilet and the steam heat first and second floors for the studios house entirely by its own. It was uh, separate from the other houses there at the lumber yard, of the buildings at the lumber yard. So uh, Motherwell took that to heart and they began that, began using that studio, although they didn't renovate immediately, but there they are. Helen's studio was on the ground floor, his was on the upper floor. And he kept that space the rest of his life, actually. He was always there. And this is one of the wonderful paintings, Orange Breaking Through. It's in the second gallery, that second gallery in the exhibition. That mother, uh, Frankenthaler, painted there. She obviously had more room than she had uh, in the studio in the house and uh, was able to work on much larger canvases. So this is 61, sort of a breakthrough summer in that sense. Interestingly enough, much has been sort of made of some of the work that they both did. They had a joint show soon after they arrived in Provincetown. And it's getting more and more study because these are two uh, works. Frank uh, Motherwell began a series that he called Beside the Sea. Now, they were very close to the sea in their house and also studio. He also liked to walk over to uh, the breakwater to a house over right on the water. If you know Provincetown, you know that it's a great tidal surge, so when the tide goes out, there's lots of beach, as it were, and when it comes back in, it really breaks against uh, against the breakwater and causes these great plumes and, and sprays of water, which always intrigued him. And as I say, he, of the two painters, was much more interested, really, in sort of observing nature um, sort of directly. and. The horizontal is of course indicative of the horizontal plane uh, of, the, of the earth. This is a painting of Frankenthalers from 64, uh, which you might say was influenced. Did they influence one another? I do understand that there will be a show in the works possibly for the Provincetown Museum. So that would be wonderful to see too of the two painters at that period. In of course two painters that close together probably inevitably influence each other in some way this is the house where you see there in the background that he uh, they came to call the sea barn uh, there uh, with the bell with the boat in front he had a little speedboat called la belle Hélène, he named it and after helen and his daughter said he was absolutely the world's worst swimmer and they were always quite terrified when he <laughs> When he took over a boat, but apparently they were sturdy and they had to, it was enough to sort of buzz around the bay. And but he had known of this house. You can see it, the sea barn, the sort of taller one there. And over a period, really, of the next eight years, they began renovations to it. He had uh, would love to go over and sit there. As you see, it's directly on the bay water, even from Commercial Street. He would go sometimes at the end of the day and sit and in this total you know proximity to the water and the house was abandoned at that time and he was finally able over the years to find the heirs, it was tied up in an estate, find the heirs and finally purchase it. So by 1964 they had started to renovate, they first made studios for themselves, then they later made a guest room there. or guest rooms for guests staying at Commercial Street. So they sort of began to make their mark there. Helen wrote a letter to Sonia Rudikoff, I think, and she said, all the neighbors are talking about the white skyscraper going up on the breakwater. So not unlike, you know, when you try to do something to your house here. In the East. Everybody has an opinion about it. But there she is on the patio. You can see that sort of deck in front of the house, which is where they entertained and had a lot of visitors. That's Barbara Rose, the wonderful writer who came and did a in a later year, did a wonderful interview with Frankenthaler, but that's the sort of patio on the deck there. So they were able to entertain, although Helen said any guests, even one staying in proximity, that they would be welcome at 7.30. Well, I, you know, not to start the cocktail hour too soon. Her stepdaughter, Lee's mother, well, talks about she and her sister going off to play or to camp early in the day but they were expected to return for uh, lunch every day and that she and uh, Motherwell and Frankenthaler would always sit for a lunch together. The girls of course would not go to the grown-up dinners at that point but Motherwell also painted by some accounts you know well into the night and Frankenthaler often kept apparently a daybed also in his studio, where if she wanted to go visit, and <laughs> it was getting late. She might even, um, well, at least lie down for that moment. But they were sort of on different schedules as far as that meant, and maybe was the secret to their happiness, who knows. But uh, they would always come together for the lunch and then for entertaining. Now, Motherwell was not too big on the social, socializing, and Frankenthaler herself obviously didn't want it to intrude on her uh, time in the studio. Very prolific summers, really, for both of them. And, um, well, she famously said that when she arrived, he had neither, he didn't have a phone (laughs) and no television. She said she was all right with no television, but she finally, after some years, won, and they did install a phone, finally. But he really didn't like to be disturbed. Uh, than that way. So these first summers when they had acquired the Seaborn, had studios there still living on Commercial Street. Just this fantastic series of paintings which are in the uh, the large gallery on the left as you go in. Cool summer. Provincetown or the Provincetown Cape. Oh, I'm sorry The Cape. Beautiful painting. This is the Breakwater. Again, evident that what Frankenthaler is looking at is nature, but obviously totally abstracted from that. Uh, Lee's motherwell tells us she was a fantastic swimmer, and the thing at the sea barn, you could go out and just leap off over the breakwater. Well, when the tide was in, <laughs> when the water was deep enough, obviously, but you could swim right there, go down the ladder, to go into the bay, and then Helen swam most. At least twice a day, she was an avid swimmer, and a way for her to, you know, break the, break the pattern of being in the studio again in the large room. Uh, blue abstraction. Now this is getting into a bit later in '64. Absolutely gorgeous paintings. All of these, she did switch to an, and you might see that in the work. She did switch to acrylic uh, at one point, though she went back and forth with acrylic and oil. Uh, the thing, of course, and still painting on the floor. None of these are easel paintings. She did go back and forth. Acrylic, obviously, had the had the uh, feature of being it would dry much faster. A lot of new product coming in in acrylics versus oil at that period. So she enjoyed the acrylic, and it, of course, would soak into this the surface. Some still unprimed canvas, but it had the great property of drying quickly, obviously, and. Both of them, at the end of the summer, both she and Motherwell, would roll everything or re-roll or get everything ready to go back to New York. It was shipped and obviously often in shows the following fall and winter and spring or in traveling exhibitions. Both of them showed widely. She left T de Nage and went with, and about in this period, in 1960, went with the Andre Emmerich Gallery, a very well-established gallery on the Upper East Side. And these paintings, as I say, were shown really throughout the world. A lot of traveling exhibitions sponsored by places like the Museum of Modern Art. Uh, you may have run across references to the really Uh, political, well, let's say, uh, the State Department uh, circulated a lot of shows, they cooperated with European museums, really, who were still uh, really in a post-war period in the 60s, and uh, brought these American paintings as a way of celebrating freedom and democracy, ironically, abstract, but um, just to to celebrate that, certainly all the abstract painters, those paintings went around the world. There was a whole department at the Museum of Modern Art called International Shows, and that went well through the 60s into the early 70s, actually, when they focused not on Europe, then on Latin America to prove prove to Latin America that democracy was the way to go. I don't know how well that took, but... um, (laughs) Oh, again, Breakwater, the beautiful Breakwater. Blue abstraction and its beauty, Low Tide. I will say, did anyone see the show in Provincetown? It was beautiful. They had a wonderful, they had actually just enlarged and redone that show. Uh, Lise Motherwell and Jeannie Motherwell have both continued to spend um, their summers and a large part of their lives. Jeannie is a painter. Lee's is a psychoanalyst. I think that's a... Interesting combo for daughters of a painter, right? And they've spent, as I say, Jeannie has long had a studio there, wonderful painter. And uh, Lise has spent major parts of the year there every year. And she's chairman of the board of the Provincetown Association and Art Museum. And she, it was really at her impetus and fundraising for some renovation at the museum, which as you know it is, is charming, but rather small so they got ready for the show there were however many many of the large paintings which you may uh, imagine could not quite fit even if even due to their with their extension and and greater gallery space so most of the large paintings you see in the final gallery large gallery on the left are in fact works that are only shown here so they so the show's been really augmented in that way and tells you know, a a really, uh, another story. And we'll get into that last period of 67 through 69 in the talk next week. But this is this um, sort of middle period, you might say, in the years in Provincetown when they both were painting in the sea barn. This wonderful one is Provincetown window. Now, that's rather ironic, because she really didn't, I mean, the notion would be that you're looking out a window into nature which uh, she didn't really do, but that's just a beauty of a painting. I wanted to, the next year, Helen, got Helen Frankenthaler, um, got the bee in her bonnet. The girls were now about, what, I don't know, 8 and 10 or something like that. And she got the idea that they should go to Europe. She thought it would be good for everyone to take a continental tour. And apparently they had a wonderful time, and she wrote in a letter to her, and they did take a nanny. Helen had hired a nanny when the girls first came to live with them, so that was baked in, which you need if you're raising children and trying to have a painting career. Um, She wrote back to her friend, Sonia Rudikoff, and she said, Jeannie and Lise have been wonderful travelers. They often balk at the strange food, but even then make a good try and do their very best. They were far more impressed by Venice than Paris the real drama of the trip has been their relation to Bob. It's nice to see them understand him and his style more and more, and many things they might have feared or wondered about are much more clear to them now. So to say she took a real interest in these girls is an understatement. You know, she was certainly new to motherhood or stepmotherhood or whatever you want to call it, but she embraced that and I do know that um, she and Lee's mother, well, have remained friends throughout the years. Lee said, after all, she taught me to swim. How could I not? (laughs) How could I not adore her? So there they are at the Parthenon and uh, so, uh, you you know, just wonderful to hear that sort of uh, personal moment and also, uh, sharing with the girls that the uh, and I don't think Bob had ever been to Greece somehow so as well, but sharing with them that that love of art and love of uh, history that they had. There on the le- on the right, of course, is Frankenthaler, and on the left is Frank O'Hara, the wonderful art critic and writer and poet, some, uh, from the New York School of poets who uh, very, very early on recognized Frankenthaler. In fact, um, there was a retrospective organized at the Jewish Museum in 1960. He was not working there, but he was uh, asked to write the catalog essay. And he was an early, early proponent of her work, which is interesting because most of the artists he championed were more in the sort of well Helen was there for a while too, but in the T. de Nage, you might say Grace Hartigan with whom he was great friends or Fairfield Porter or Larry Rivers. That was more his circle. A bit of an antipathy to Clement Greenberg who of course was sort of diametrically opposed to the figurative painters you might say or those who were f- following a more figurative path in their work like Rivers or like like, or like Alex Katz. and uh, But he early on championed Helen's work, which was, you know, a very important uh, connection for her. And she really kept those sort of, you might always almost say, downtown friends from uh, Tibor, although they were mostly uptown by that time, but before she sort of moved into the Andre Emmerich. But this is Frank O'Hara in Provincetown at Seabarn. That's the patio there. And I love the Lower picture is the view on the patio. It's obviously a more recent picture because the planking is different. Not brick, but looks like wood. But looking out um, at Provincetown Bay, I mean, you can't get much closer than that. Mm -hmm. So there was a good deal of entertaining going on. Some of it was well, I guess maybe strategic or politically adept. But they seem to have had a wide circle of friends and really enjoyed that, even if they couldn't come until 7.30 for the evening. This is the final sort of final uh, elevation of the sea barn. That's that white skyscraper that you can see how it sort of sticks out on the breakwater. And there's Frankenthaler bobbing up and down. The picture on the right, she's teaching Lee's to swim. Uh, right there, so kind of steep steps down. This is a part. This is actually back at 622 Commercial Street, because you can see the house is sort of chock a block there, just a stockade front uh, fence separating. Reminds me of Sag Harbor, where your <laughs> where your neighbors you can use, most of them you can <coughs> reach out and touch. It's so close. So this is back in the mid 60s. That's Hans Hoffman, upper left whom uh, they saw frequently. That's Bill Seitz, William Seitz next in the center on the back who was at that point, had worked at MoMA. That's Little Lees there. Uh, That's Bob Motherwell. And this is Irma Seitz, who's Bill Seitz's wife. That's Jeannie. And that's one, Henry Geldzahler, who got around too. So this could be pretty typical of a dinner party. I think it's 622 Commercial Street. On the right is a big calendar was kept of all these sort of social engagements or things that need to be ordered for dinners or any of the things that you might uh, need to do to keep a summer schedule going. Uh, Frankenthaler really did was the social uh, impresario, as it were, Motherwell by all accounts much more retiring, but he certainly was a wonderful host. Uh, when everyone came and then I guess he went to the studio to paint after everyone left but I love that drawing in the uh, the date book there. Frankenthaler was continuing to paint on the floor, certainly on the floor of the studio in canvas. This is a wonderful picture of the uh, in the Fiat Jolly in 1961. She's given always one for the dramatic moment, right? She helped the girls, ran a lemonade stand um, several summers. And as um, Lee's Motherwell tells the story, when the girls got a bit older at the end of the summer, they were, had been allowed to keep all their profits and were very happy about that. And <laughs> When they were about, oh, maybe seven and nine at the end of the summer, Helen presented them with a bill for all their lemons <laughs> and the sugar. Lee said it was a painful lesson, but it did show that (laughs) it wasn't necessarily easy to make money. Apparently, sometimes Motherwell flew the French flag. He was an enormous uh, Francophile, but here, maybe around the Fourth of July, he flew the American flag. So I I just wanted to, uh, this is, you, you might say, the Halcyon period. Uh, For the Golden Couple, this is when they were, I won't say it's most productive, but they were very productive and very happy in those summers with the girls and other trips that they made. Each of them grew a great deal, really, in their careers. As Jack Flam said, Motherwell had sort of gone into a more fallow period in his painting after 20 years, and and Frankenthaler really revitalized it. She continued to paint with enormous energy. If you see the video, if you stop and have a chance to look at that, you see the kind of energy and really uh, determination in that, you know, really above all the risk-taking in painting that way. I don't think she got too many um, second chances in that way. Uh, sometimes called one shot. <laughs> the Mountains and Sea was always famously called the one-shot painting, which annoyed her quite a good deal because... That makes it seem far too casual and enterprise. But uh, you you do see that spontaneity in inventiveness, experimentation with materials. There's one painting in the first room that she put coffee grounds in with plaster of Paris. And and Lee's mother, well, said that she always drank big, had big cans of Martinson's coffee and kept the cans because she'd throw, you know, sling paint from it. Drip uh, sling is not a good word, but... <laughs> put the paint on the canvas with coming from the coffee can. And that furthermore, she never threw out a coffee ground because she kept that as well to sometimes mix in with the medium. So it's been an interesting, certainly for me, to study one piece. I think what's really particularly interesting about the exhibition is that not only to see the paint, but to see where they actually were, how where the studios were influences them. And as a teaser for next week, we'll look at the last three or four years that she spent in Provincetown when she moved to another studio, a bit of distance from Commercial Street and the Sea Barn to a more isolated but a larger studio in which she was able to paint those tremendous paintings. Lee's mother well felt it was well in some sense because the girls were older there was a lot more activity friends coming over and she wanted a bit of distance from that shall we say the the house that they lived in because by the end all the, the studios were in C barn as well so I'll be delighted to see you next week. Thank you you're a great audience.